on this episode of TR Talk. Then a few years down the road when I was playing for the Saints, I actually got to hit Urlacher in games a couple times. And those are moments, one, he, he knocked the absolute snot out of me. Uh, and so it's like those, those are very, one of the very few times like I got up off the ground like that was really cool. There was Dasher and Dancer and Prancer and Vixen, Comet and Cupid and Donner and Blitzen, but do you recall the most famous podcast of all? Yes, it is Tommy Tahoe, Ryan, R-Dub, Warner, we're in the house. Last episode of TR Talk of the Year, where we are interviewing leaders in their fields, to understand how millennials can fast-track their personal development. Today, we have my good friend, Jed Collins, former NFL pro. Played on several teams, including playing with Brian Urlacher and Drew Brees right after the Saints won the Super Bowl. This is a great one for you guys. want to give a quick shout-out to the TR Talk Fan of the Week, my other good friend, Alexander James Ragno. Appreciate the love and support. He's coming from New Jersey, similar to DJ Polly D, but he's an accountant, so not the same at all. So now we're going to take you back, put that chin strap on, put on the cleats, onto the NFL gridiron with our good friend, Jed Collins. All right, Jed, welcome to the podcast, man. How's oh, it going? It's a beautiful day up here in Seattle. I appreciate you guys having me on. Hey, it's our pleasure. We're really excited for it. Now, I got to know, Jed, you spent seven years in the league. Are you still a fan of, of any SoCal teams since you're from Orange County, or who do you pull for? You know, that's an interesting question. The, the true and honest answer is now I am more a fan of Washington State football than, uh, than the NFL. Uh, I got two little ones at home, so I don't get uh, all weekends to watch the games. But uh, I grew up a Niners fan, which makes living in Seattle that much more challenging. Uh, because everybody up here hates the Niners. But now I kind of have that counterculture side of me that kind of enjoys walking around. And I'll obviously always support the Saints who gave me a career and changed my life. But if I had to go with like my childhood team, uh, I'm going to stick with the Niners. Man, it's it's nuts up there in Seattle. I go up there probably once or twice a month for work. And you'll go in July on a random Wednesday, and you'll see 150 people with Russell Wilson's jerseys. They do not take it lightly no, at they all. Don't. It's and it's, uh, it's called Blue Fridays. And before every game, they, yeah, the entire city, it doesn't matter what industry. I'm in finance, whether you're in tech or whatever. Uh, everybody comes in their jerseys, and some people wear those little eye blacks. And, you, you know, I, you love it. As a former player, like, I, I'm now becoming a fan of the game. Uh, but I like to see that because as I want, like I said, as I watch Cougar games, Washington State games, I have those emotionals. I'm very fanatical about it. And so like now I get to take a step back and see that person walking in the jersey and they're like, all right, I get I get more and more why you feel a part of it because I, I, I feel like that now. That's so cool. And so we'll dive into it. So you spent seven years in the league. And so we want to take some time to understand what your NFL journey was like, and then we'll get into some of the things you're doing now at Brighton mm-hmm. Jones. So let's just start with draft day, right? Where are you at? Um, you know, what's that experience like? Because a lot of the audience, they think of draft day as the ESPN show, where some of the top recruits get to go in the audience. They're instant millionaires. Um, it's probably not like that for everybody. So what was it like for you? 
Uh, it's definitely not like that for everybody. And it was uh, from draft day on, it's kind of, and that's the beauty of getting to experience the journey. Uh, I get to give that perspective. And that's what I've, I've really tried to capture in uh, some of my writings is that that world that isn't on the newspaper or isn't on ESPN, that truly the majority of guys go through and experience. So my draft day began, you know, it was kind of already a roller coaster. I was never planning on going to the NFL. I was going to go get my GMAT. I was going to go get my master's in accounting and kind of head down this business path uh, where halfway through my senior year, a scout from the Chargers came onto campus. And it just coincidentally, I remember riding up in an elevator with him uh, and kind of seeing he was looking around trying to figure out where he was and saying, hey, you know, who are you looking for? He said, Coach Dobo, who was our head coach at the time. I said, come on, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll show you the way. Uh, and in chatting with him, he kind of opened up that he knew who I was. He was there to watch my film and uh, kind of this weird gate or door opened like, hey, this this dream that has seemed so far off and so un, you know capturable has some possibility of becoming reality. And once you have that thought and that like uh, uh, untouchable glass shatters, then you start to tell yourself things and you start to believe a little bit of the hype. Then I started to like read some of my press clippings and people talking about me and saying, hey, you know, this kid is very draftable. And for one time, I thought I was going to go as the high as the fourth round. And so come draft day, I, I was telling people like, oh, probably fifth or sixth round draft pick. I had secret, you know, hopes of fourth round. And the day comes back when it was just two days of the draft and Sunday comes and all day goes by. My brother's there. A bunch of my friends and family are, are just sitting in my living room. And it gets to a point where, you know, that embarrassment uh, kind of settles in. And I had to, you know, escape back into my room by myself and, you know, just await, wait it out, wait it out, wait it out. And then Mr. Relevant, the last pick of the draft comes, comes and goes. And I woke up to that realization, the same realization I woke up to on my pro day when I didn't run a, as good of a 40 as I wanted to. The same realization I, I realized when I was leaving high school and going to college and wasn't receiving the scholarships I wanted to. Uh, I woke up to the reality that my work had just started. You know, nothing I had done was going to kind of continue with me. Nobody was going to just hand me anything. And so from draft day on, I knew I had something to prove. And uh, my journey uh, through football, which was always changing positions and figuring out how to survive and add value, truly led me into kind of a great mindset of success and understanding through my journey, I woke up to some good realizations, but I also woke up to this idea of first you have to survive and then you get to succeed. Um, and so it was just kind of a combination of those, those two thoughts combated with the, the documentaries and the statistics coming out about the, the financial stresses and hardships players and athletes in general were going through that my NFL journey and dream kind of had a, a little bit of a shaky uh, under undertone that we always had to, you know, no, uh, identify the elephant in the room. Well, your, your mindset is exceptional. And going back to draft day for just a second, on the second day, you were called by you know, three or four teams saying, hey, you're our guy, we're going to pick you. And then they didn't. And so how do you manage that roller coaster of, shit after two of those calls maybe you're like man i'm just not this isn't for me maybe i'm not cut out for this and then you get another call from another team they're like hey you're our guy then you get hyped up again so how do you manage those ups and downs like that as a young 20 year old yeah as a as a young 20 year old you don't you you very much go on that emotional roller coaster of 
you know, my life's about to change. I started looking at, you know, apartments and things like that and cities and, you know, trying to find a hat and a sweatshirt with the team logo on it. Um, <laughs> you, uh, you know, it, it was again, it was a, it, and now looking back on it at the, at the time, at the, in the moment, I definitely didn't have this understanding. But looking back on it, it was a practice of how, what was it, what was in my control and what was out of my control. And that's what's so hard about the draft system is, as of today, you know, the vast majority of guys can, well, not, I guess now in today's bowl game, a lot of them have one more, but you typically, you have one more game and then your, your controllables are done. Yes, you can stay out of trouble, but there's really nothing you can do to kind of work up people's depth charts. And so it's always interesting to me to see January, February, March go by and people on the depth, uh, on your draft board kind of go up and down. When football is done playing, and I was always one of those guys that the moment football was done being played, my draft status or my uh, kind of football prowess always took a decline because it went to a stack of resumes and how you can differentiate those as speed, size, uh, and things like that, not necessarily film or how they're going to uh, produce out on the field. So uh, it, it is just a, it's a, it's an interesting journey, but, uh, you know, I, I'm sorry. I hope I answered that question. That, that was, yeah, you did. You, you yeah. did. And, and that's, you bring me to a, an interesting thing that I read yesterday. Are you familiar with the term glue guy? No. So I read this piece from Shane Battier. Do you know who that is? The former Absolutely. NBA player. Yeah. And he, he wrote this in the player's tribune about being a glue guy, meaning like, you know, you're, it's not the star player, but it's someone that um, you know, does the dirty work that they, you know, help kind of bring the team together. They do a lot of the intangibles and that's like, you know, really what he was. And that's why, you know, the Heat won championships and things like that and the importance of that. And I think that is is kind of the role that it seems like that you were playing where, you know, you played all these different positions. You know, you weren't the biggest guy or the fastest guy, but you were just kind of doing what you could to make to add value, like you said. Um, and I just thought it was a it was a cool piece for for people to check out. I didn't know if that was a term that um, it was used around with, with professional sports and things like that. Cause I'd never heard it before. No. And I think that's, uh, you know, the, the uniqueness of a guy like Shane Battier, uh, that is able to maybe even create that term, but that identity and that definition of a player, uh, is felt and understood throughout all locker rooms. Um, and you see those guys, you know, whether they're the coaches guys or the locker room guys, they're the ones who you understand and are the most consistent not only consistently out on the, the field performing, but consistently showing up with, again, controlling the control boat, controllables, which is their preparation, their attitude, their work ethic, all those things that you can point to. Those are, That's the glue guy, the guy that you understand what you're going to get and you know everybody else on the team can kind of use them as, as a yardstick to aim at uh, in showing up to every day chasing the championship. Yeah, that I mean that's huge, and, and I think it's just the the reality check with yourself. Like, not everyone is you know the best in the world at whatever they're doing. In fact, you know, ninety nine point nine percent of people aren't. So it's about that attitude. And so if we continue on the journey here past draft day, um, you know, you're you're picked up and cut from several teams, and and some of them were in you know pretty quick spans. <laughs> so it seems like that that unpredictability and that. That mentality has to continue, right? I mean, what, what was that like? Uh, it was. It was. Uh, it was definitely unpredictable. Um, yeah, I, I spent time on. I like to call it a baker's dozen teams. My first couple <laughs> of years, uh, 
I got a lot of free sweatshirts and cups of coffee. Uh, and but truly, I, my my wife now, and she was my fiance at the time, was doing the journey with me. I joke with her. I always called her my executioner because by the time she got to a city, I was usually getting the call to get get cut and go to the next city. But uh, it, it it's hard, and you you learn to you know appreciate being there every week. And that's what's neat about being undrafted, being humbled, and then truly not making the team your first go around and being cut and moving around is you kind of, your, your career dies. And each time you, you feel that death, you feel that uh, pit in your stomach that this dream, this journey could be over, it, it gives you another hunger. Um, and so what I truly had to do is I transitioned from college tight end to NFL fullback I needed to find more of that hunger. I needed to understand I was going to have to fight fire with fire and truly have a, a desire to do a job that I had never done before. And it's a job not many people you know, line up for or sign up for. Um, and so it's it's just that thought of, hey, you know, my wife and I, every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Eastern time that I was on a team, we'd have a glass of wine. We'd have a little cheers and a toast to one. I was getting a paycheck that seat that week, but two, it. it we weren't having to move. We weren't having to question. I, my second season, I spent my first five weeks uh, at home on the streets. And as those weeks roll by, you start to ask yourself, one, financially, can I continue to withstand this lifestyle of just not having an income? But two, like, what is this doing for my future, my career? And maybe not everybody has those thoughts, but those are the ones when I was sitting at home without a, a job and without a team, I, I didn't sleep. You know, it's just that the weight of the world, it feels like it's on you. And once you actually do get a job and you go into a team, you, whether you're a practice squad, starter, whoever you are, you approach the game with that kind of intensity. And that's what coaches want to see. Truly, that was one of my biggest uh, eye-opening moments was when I needed to begin to, to approach the game with that sort of desperation that um, coaches always saw me as maybe somebody who had one foot out the door because I was an accounting major, because I'm, you know, maybe had other aspirations and they didn't like that. So I needed to go and show them that I, I'd been cut. I'd felt it. I'd never wanted to feel it again. And I was willing to do whatever I had to do to, to make that come to fruition. Yeah. That hunger really comes out under those pressure cook situations where you're at home for five weeks in your second year and you don't have a team. I actually didn't realize that coming into the interview because man, those five weeks can go by pretty quickly. And next thing you know, you know, you're, you're almost irrelevant, but then you got picked up again. Um, and then you went on to, to a career with the saints, which we'll touch on. But one thing I want to speak to is, you know, what's really hard for me and a lot of folks, I think in our generation is even if you do everything right, sometimes it's still not going to work out for you. And that certainly is the case with you, um, and with a lot of people, right. But you, you were able to keep going. So I'm curious, did you have any secrets or anything you did when you got that call that you were being cut did you go for a walk did you meditate like what did you do at that exact moment to get over that uh that downtime uh truly meditation came into my career uh later on and it had more to do with uh, the concussion uh realization and, and how i can combat that but that now is is a great practice in, in dealing with kind of curveballs and life's life's you know surprises but Back in that time, I'm a huge journaler. So what I did and how I was able to share my draft day story, my pro day story, even truly the, the moment I knew I was done playing football, uh, I wrote a piece called The Cocktail Party. 
Um, and I would just continue to love to write these stories of coming with me on the journey, coming with me into maybe the last you know conversation I had with the head coach when he was cutting me and, and leaving that room and just pouring it into my journal and, and trying to discover why it all went wrong, how I could be blindsided by this game that I told myself I wasn't going to be blindsided by again. So my combatant, my response was always to get into my journal and to dive deeper into myself. You know, did I have any, was I doing anything that uh, I shouldn't have been doing that, that led to this point? Was there anything I could have been doing to kind of do that? And again, go back to controlling the controllables, one of the, the best veteran tips uh, in any locker room, in any you know work environment is just focusing on what I did. And uh, the humble reality is my first time I got activated was because Brady Quinn, a quarterback, went on IR. Had nothing to do with me. They they had a, a job opening and, you know, it was a different position. And then the first time I got cut from that same team was because they had to activate a cornerback. And so, again, you, you just see those scenarios and those situations and you say, okay, obviously there are certain things that are that are beyond me. And in the NFL is, is, a, is a blessing and a curse because at 20, 21, 22 years old, you're faced with not only these life decisions of, you know, physically, how is it going to impact me financially? What can I take from the game? What lessons can I learn for the long run? But on a moment to moment basis, you, you wake up to these life lessons of, hey, you know, this is this is reality. Like my career could be done tomorrow. I could, you know, have to change my my home and my my future and all these things. And, you know, typical 22, 23 year old doesn't face those decisions. So you try to find those those kind of uh lessons or, or uh, little pearls of wisdom within all the chaos. And typically, like I, I was able to capture them through my journals and it wasn't in the moment that I saw them, but it was going back and looking at them and rereading them that I was able to kind of, and uh, Steve Jobs has a great uh, quote and a great speech on connecting the dots backwards and not forwards. Uh, now I'm able to go back and look at the journey and see all the lessons the game has taught me. Uh, and that's part of the reason I was able to kind of get into what I'm doing now and see kind of through all the, the, the dust and the smoke of the, the game uh, while I was in it. Yep. Well, it all starts with uh, self-awareness, I think, right? And I think sports mm-hmm. gives folks the ability to be introspective and have that self-awareness at an early age. Um, before we go on to some of the work you're doing now, you mentioned the word Brady Quinn, which is a household name for many folks in the Midwest. But you also played with, with some really – you know, well-known players, Brian Urlacher, um, Drew Brees. So, my, my, my childhood hero, Brian Urlacher. Man, he's, he's the man. I grew up a diehard Bears fan. I mean, you couldn't even come in my house on Sunday to my dad's house if you were wearing like a Packers jersey or a Vikings jersey. So, Right. So my favorite moment from Chicago, uh, I was there with Levy Smith, the head coach. And he was a very players-friendly guy. And so before every practice day, he would have like a 30-minute buffer for guys to – get dressed, get taped, and mostly it was just BS time. And so they'd go into like the team room and they had two ping pong tables. And so like my childhood dream had nothing to do with football, but I breathed Brian Erlacher at ping pong. And I was like, this, this is it. Like, no matter what happens from here, like this is just all good. Was he, was he pissed that you beat him? Oh yeah, he's super competitive. It yeah. was really good. He, he, they, what was really neat was uh, in that locker room, and actually my last year in Detroit, they had a, a ping pong table. And it's silly things like that where you see guys 
uh, just personalities come out. One, who's the competitors? Two, who's going to try to like work on things to get better? And three, ultimately, who's just a winner and can figure out how to beat people over and over and over? Uh, and then a few years down the road, when I was playing for the Saints, I actually got to hit Urlacher in games a couple times. And those are moments. One, he, he knocked the absolute snot out of me. Uh, and so it's like those those are very, one of the very few times like I got up off the ground like that was really cool. <laughs> How hard does that guy hit? He well, it's, he's hard. So he didn't hit as hard as a lot of guys, but he's three inches taller than you expect. So as a middle linebacker, I'm expecting you know six one come down. He's going to get leverage on me and get under me and hit me in the chin. And he was a guy who, like, I'd always try to go hit, and like his his the, the aiming point was always a little bit higher, so I'd always be a little bit off. And he obviously, after a, you know, decade of doing it, knew how to have body control and use his skills and his talents accordingly. So it was not so much at the the force of impact, but just his leverage was always throwing throws you know, especially fullbacks or blockers off. So. He, he was just a unique guy, and, you know, obviously the speed he had allowed him to be as successful as he was. He is a bad man. The Bears <laughs> could use some of that right about now. Um, but, but so how about, um, you know, we've, we've teased it a little bit, but, it, you know, you're, the longest stint you had was with the Saints and probably the most successful. You came to them, I think, right after they won their, their Super Bowl, uh, and, you know, Drew Brees is on the team, and... Um, you know, a lot of they had a, I think like five or six Pro Bowlers that year. Sean Payton was the coach. Like, so what was you were on all these teams? You mentioned a Baker's dozen. Like, what was the difference that you saw for like why the Saints, outside of talent, were the Super Bowl champs, and why was Drew Brees? Why is Drew Brees one of the best quarterbacks ever? Like, what was the difference there? I mean, we could do a, an entire other podcast on why Drew Brees is one of the greatest in the world, but. Uh, truly one, like you see, you mentioned walking into the building, they had the Lombardi trophy on display, like in the, the uh, entryway. And so it, entering any, any building with something like that is like your first like view kind of just gives you a different, you know, feeling and vibe, but the same reason the saints won the super bowl and, you know, obviously are now rebounding into success, but have found success under the Sean Payton era is the same reason I got a chance was, they were willing to, and every NFL team at the beginning of a training camp says, hey, guys, we don't care. We want to find the best 53 people to go win a championship. And whether it's it, it, while it's lip service in a lot of locker rooms and a lot of pro, uh, uh, teams, in New Orleans, it wasn't. They were very willing to cut a draft pick for a free agent who could play. Pierre Thomas, Marcus Colston, those guys were not named people. Lance Moore, you look at their offense. Uh, and you then you get to a guy like myself who uh, I was just there to fill in a, a, a serviceable role in the practice squad. Uh, ironically, again, I, I connect the dots backwards. The reason I got my chance was because of the CBA lockout. The, the player, the free agent they brought in to be the starting fullback couldn't practice technically because of the CBA. And so he had to sit out for three days. And so I was thrown in as the starter. And it was that... Uh, kind of off the wall chance that I got to be in there and show what I can do. And then it was the saints having the wherewithal to say, yeah, sure. We just gave this other guy money and we thought he was going to be the guy, but we're okay. We're going to admit mistakes. This other player is, is performing and producing on the field what we, to the level we want. 
And so New Orleans was one of the few places that would say that, would admit mistakes and say, no, even though we've had commitment and draft or, or money or time or whatever in another player, let's find the best 53. And that mentality, you know, uh, possibly they, they got away from in some of their down years, but that was their truly their success was they were the land of misfit toys and they found out how to put the best product on the field. Well, it reminds me of that Tom's a big Patriots fan, and how can you oh, not be yeah. a fan of the things they're doing there? But uh, they drafted this guy, or they uh, they signed this guy in like 2001, Stephen Neal, who was a Division One wrestling national champ. He was a world freestyle champ. Never played a lick of college football. Belichick signs him, and he starts with him for eight years. You know, <laughs> so that that kind of story of finding folks who maybe don't have that traditional background seems to be pervasive amongst good teams. Um, you're, you're absolutely right, because as I was coming out, I had guys, you know, veteran players tell me, you need to find your way to New England or New Orleans. And, and ironically, those are the two teams we brought up. But I, I was told that. So when I made my way to New Orleans, uh, Jordan Palmer, who's a, a longtime quarterback, Carson Palmer's younger brother, and a high school teammate of mine, good friend, uh, he called me and was like, man, I'm excited for you. This is a place you can you can figure it out. This is a place that will give you a chance and you can find how to add value and they'll they'll value that. Uh, and so, yeah, you look at a, a place like New England, uh, there's a player coming out of Washington State. He's a junior. We don't know if he's leaving or not, named Hercules Mata'afa, who's a 250-pound nose tackle. And in the NFL, you say that's unlikely. You know, nobody's going to be 250 pounds and playing that position. But New, New England is the kind of place that says, forget all that. Forget tradition. Forget the boxes we put each position in. How can we get this kid has proven to be talented at football? How do we get him on the field and then design the, the defensive scheme around that? Uh, and it's it's mm-hmm. just a different mindset and philosophy. Football is very much an old school thought process. We do what we do and we're going to keep doing it. Uh, and so to have uh, that new approach and that and it's a humbled reality, you know, a guy like Belichick continually changes his entire design week to week. That just says, hey, I don't believe my stuff is better than anyone's. I believe I have to get better. That's it, man. And it's such a unique perspective. Um, And so, listen, we could talk about the NFL all day. And I do want to have you back on the show to talk about, like, what makes Drew Brees so unique. But I also want to dive into something we've talked about offline, and it's your rookie to veteran presentation. Um, You Mm -hmm. are now a wealth advisor. Uh, for Brighton Jones, you know, one of the you know, super large and, and respected RIA here on the West Coast. So could you speak to this presentation you're giving? And are you giving it to sales teams or I guess talk us through that a little bit? Yeah. So truly, it, it came as a thought process. My dad continued to challenge me. Hey, what did you learn from the NFL? And you're not going to be able to go into football teams and share it. So try to figure out how to connect it to the corporate world and and connect it to even something bigger, which is just success in general. Uh, Like I mentioned earlier, my journey through the NFL, I woke up to the reality that 70 percent of guys were going to find out fall on financial hardships. So I realized that the dream not wasn't necessarily just money. And so if money, especially being a no-name, kind of minimum contract type player, if money wasn't going to be my gift, what was my gifts from the game? And so I went through and I found 10 stories that reiterated uh, principles of success. And they were truly thoughts that I went into the games and teams and every August just trying to survive. 
and I thought that was the goal. The first time I made the, the team, it was the you know beginning of September, and I thought my job and dream had been accomplished. And then somebody woke me up and was like, hey, no, you got literally 17 weeks to, to accomplish this dream. And these are going to be the 17 hardest weeks you've ever experienced. And so it was that, that humbled reality of like, okay, maybe I was looking at this incorrectly. And I needed to start to learn from our veterans of how to not just survive, but to succeed. Uh, and so what I did was created 10 principles. Uh, and I'm not going to share all of them. So, you know, I don't want to waste your guys time, but uh, a few of my favorites and the one I begin with is it's better to be seen than heard. Uh, every year, a new set of, of rookies come into a locker room, come out onto a field, and everybody talks about how good they were in college, talks about how much money they did make or are going to make or how many contracts they're going to have. And truly, uh, one of the veterans, would you, you reiterate and continue to hear veterans tell these young guys, hey, there's a reason we don't watch film with audio on. You got to be seen making plays before anybody's going to learn your name or anybody's going to give a darn at what you say. And so just that mentality of, hey, it, it doesn't matter what you're saying. It's better to be seen than heard. And that gets into another principle that is the difference between confidence and cockiness. External voice, if I'm telling you something and telling you how good I am, that is cockiness. If I'm internally telling myself and focusing on, you know, getting my mindset correct, that's confidence. In a player, we, you mentioned earlier, self-awareness. Uh, one of the greatest attributes and things and skills athletes have is this self-awareness and this ability to look themselves in the mirror and say, I can go perform and produce on this activity on this day. That confidence is something that every athlete must have. Where they slip into a problem is when they start doing that external voice and, and got going to cockiness. Um, another one of the lessons I loved was the difference between what and why. You, you watch a, a rookie pick up a playbook or watch film and you watch a veteran pick up a playbook or watch film. They have two totally different trajectories. A rookie opens the playbook and looks exactly what they're supposed to do on each day and, and specifically what their call is. You look at a veteran open a playbook and he not, he's not necessarily just looking at what he knows what he's supposed to do. He starts to look at a bigger picture and understanding the why. Uh, an example of that would be uh, a play call, Z fly to trips right, 22 paint, all go special F escape. To a rookie, they hear one word and they know, okay, this is what I'm supposed to do. To a veteran, they start to break it down. They understand that the motion is intended to get a man to zone read. They understand the formation is going to get you know a, a, a single receiver or strength. Uh, by himself and isolated. They understand that the pass protection, the 22 paint is designed to tell the running back who to cover, who to, who to block, who to help out on. The, the route is designed to be a, a specific zone coverage, the cover three zone. And then if, for ha if some happens stance that they run a different coverage or a different zone, they have this F escape, which is a man-to-man -man beater that is kind of your safe all. And so you approach it as a rookie and all you hear is your what. And then as your years go on and how you learn to succeed and how you learn the intricacies of the game is truly in those why moments. Uh, and, you know, I, I interpret it into investing the same way. Everybody wants to get into investing and they, they think it's what they're supposed to do. People just say, hey, I want to put my money and go make money. And that's not truly the, the biggest takeaway. The biggest takeaway is, number one, why are you investing? What? like. Why? Why are you? What is your why? Why is there a purpose around it? Not just to make money, but what is the money intended to do? 
And then the second fold to that is why are you going to go invest in these specific things? What do you see that has them maybe mispriced or what do you believe is going to happen differently to have that success and that return come in? No, yeah, and I think that's a huge thing too, just in a in a general company, if someone's in, in a leadership role where they can break down and, and say you're you're a contributor and it's like, all right, here's your your sales quota is one million dollars or your job is to put on this marketing campaign or whatever your your role is, but to give the your your team members a bigger picture and say, All right, well your your sales quota is one million dollars, but our company is looking to do XYZ and this is why your role is so important. Or you know, you're doing this this social media campaign for marketing. Um, here's how it's going to help in our company's vision here for the next three months. And so it's like, man, I'm not just doing this small task. I'm a piece to the larger puzzle that is going to help the company grow or is going to help the team do better. Um, and it goes kind of back to being mm-hmm. that that glue guy, right? Where it's like, hey, I'm not I'm not driving the company. I'm not the CEO, but I am playing a significant role. And I think that's a huge piece of leadership to make sure people that understand that they're a big piece of the team. Yeah, and that's what you love about great coaches is their their ability to stand in front of a room full of young men in this situation because of football, stand in front of young men and get them to believe in this one idea and to believe each of them has a role and a piece to that puzzle. Uh, and it leads into this understanding that, like we talked about, I went from, you know, fullback to tight end to linebacker to, you know, whoever and on special teams or whatnot. I thought my role was going to be this jack of all trades. Like, hey, what can Jet do? He can do a little bit of everything. But truly what I had to do is wait is to find success was realize what problem could I solve? What was my job number one? In the football world, as it got to the NFL, it wasn't going to be pass catching. Jimmy Graham, Marcus Colson were always going to be better at that. It wasn't even going to be uh, pass blocking or, or running the ball, there was always going to be a better option. So I had to look at what was Jed Collins' number one job going to be, and it was going to be a lead blocking fullback. That's how I was going to get on the field. Once on the field, you can show your jack of all trades and show your skills, but to step between those sidelines and step onto the field, you had to be able to solve a problem and produce job number one. Uh, and you know, to my credit, and I, I now being away away from it, I like to. Uh, Humbly admit, I was able to succeed that. 2011, I was voted the number one fullback in the world at lead blocking. And I say that because... Who, who, who? Get me fired up, Chad. Let's do this, baby. Come on. It it is something you taste that you always strive for again. And it was a a specific role that I today could never do again. I don't know how I did it at the time, truly, but it was such a brutal and violent spot to do. And to find success in, I truly had to learn all these other principles of how my daily plan was going to lead me to that. And to come full circle with it, we look at as an advisor, as your what we call personal CFO, uh, what is our job? Number one, the industry is typically going to point to maybe getting returns or protecting and preserving your wealth. We take a step back from that and we say, as your advisors, your personal CFO at Brighton Jones, your job, number one, is to help each client live a richer life. And living a richer life is different and unique to each person, but it defines the why. It defines why you've engaged with us. It defines why you're working so hard. It defines why you want, you want money. And when you get into that richer lifestyle, you understand it's going to lead to happiness and it's going to ultimately lead to a better life. And to take that approach and to see my job, number one, is 
this new mindset and this new idea, it totally removes the responsibility of, well, hey, you know, now we're tied to how much can I do this or how much can I do that? We have a purpose and we have a goal set and we have a, a yardstick in the future that every time we meet, we get to point to and say, are we still moving towards this? Is our championship still on the horizon? If the answer is yes, then as a you know head coach, as your advisor, whoever it is, I know that day is going to be productful, uh, and I know each time that we get together, we've taken another step towards the goal. Powerful, Jed Collins. You are the man, sir. Um, listen, we could do this all day. I know we've gone over time here. Um, let's just wrap this up because we're going to have you back on real soon, man. So, um, hey, it's, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Uh, last thing is, where can folks find you on social media and any last, uh, last words for the audience? Uh, yeah, so when I come back, I'd love to describe. So one of my, my, my fun takeaways is, is understanding the difference between checkers and chess, not only on the football field, but in life and in investing in all of it. So uh, we can huddle, we'll circle back on that. Uh, I'm on Twitter, JetCollins45. I'm actually going to begin in January doing much more financial literacy. And so tweeting out uh, entry level, experience level, whoever you are, trying to increase people's financial IQ by one point with each post. Uh, I, I, my passion right now is to empower people to understand not only how to work for money, but how to make money work for them. And that's truly going to be my engagement. Uh, you can email me at jedediah.collins at brightonjones.com. Uh, and I'm on LinkedIn and all that stuff. So I'd love to connect, uh, you know, talk about football, talk about finance, talk about my passion of, of educating in this financial literacy space. And truly just anybody uh, who, who loves the, these two worlds of football to finance, uh, I, I enjoy kind of discussing. So I really appreciate ha- you guys having me on. I love the podcast. I love kind of where you're doing with this thought leadership and keep doing what you're doing. Cause this stuff's great. Thank you so much. It means a lot. And yeah, I, that last piece is, is news to me about the, you know, empowering folks with financial information. So, um, I'm excited for that. And like I said, we'll have you back on real soon, man. Thank you again. Take Sounds care. Good. Powerful Jed Collins, dropping some knowledge for the TR Talk universe. Thank you all for listening and happy holidays. We're going to be back in the new year on Tuesday the 2nd with JT McCormick, CEO and business partner of Tucker Max. Look out for that one, folks. Thank you all again. And last but not least, if you want to give Tom and I a little Christmas gift, got three things for you. Leave a review on iTunes, subscribe, or Post us out to the nooks and crannies of the interweb via social media. Thank you all. Take care. Happy 2017. Happy Hanukkah. Out.